0: The French alliance had always been the main motivation behind Henry's divorce from Catherine. In 1529, it collapsed, and now the king and his advisers seemed confused and divided. Henry showed no interest in marrying Anne Boleyn. In fact, he showed little enough interest in her at all. And he apparently did nothing about taking control of the English church for himself. Well, almost nothing.
1: In June and July 1529, Henry had been beset with disasters. The Pope had signed an alliance with the Spanish. The French had signed a peace with the Spanish. The trial of Henry's divorce had collapsed without a verdict. And, much worse, the Pope had summoned the case to Rome. Court factions, long opposed to Henry's skilful and long-serving minister, Thomas Wolsey, manoeuvred him out. Henry's court was now a grim place, full of bickering men and shouting women.
0: On the 2nd of August 1529, ten days after Henry's divorce trial had collapsed, two of his theologians, Edward Fox and Stephen Gardner, were staying at a house in Waltham, not far from London. We've met both of them before. They'd been Henry's chief envoys to the Pope. Gardiner had then taken over from Wolsey as the King's secretary. It just happened that there was another theologian staying in the house – he was a friend of the family and had got out of Cambridge because there'd been plague in the town. His name was Thomas Cranmer.
1: Well, as you can imagine, the three theologians all got talking about Henry's divorce and the prospect of the trial now being moved to Rome. Cranmer had an idea. What many scholars did when faced with a thorny question like this was to ask around, to canvass learned opinions from the universities. Well, why not do some research? Ask the theologians at the various European universities whether they thought Henry had a case against Catherine. You could also at the same time do some research as to whether the King of England could ever be put on trial abroad. It might be a way to put pressure on the Pope and his Spanish friends. Well, Gardiner and Fox evidently warmed to Cranmer's idea and they reported it back to Henry. Cranmer was quickly recruited into a team of researchers to hunt for new evidence.
0: Getting learned opinions on the divorce from the universities turned out to be a struggle. Fighting broke out in Cambridge. Henry's men were stoned by women in the streets of Oxford, one of them while he was peeing against the city wall. In the end, however, favourable verdicts were eventually extracted from both English universities, as well as from Orléans, Bologna, Padua and other places hostile to the Spanish. Of course, universities in Spain and Spanish-held territories, Louvain, Salamanca,
1: Alcalá and Seville, all came out in favour of Catherine. Henry's old ally, Francis, King of France, undertook to get the backing of the Paris theologians. It had to be done as secretly as possible since Francis, or as you remember from last time, his mother, had just signed a peace treaty with the Spanish. In fact, his sons were being held hostage by the Spanish until he paid a ransom. Francis had even been made to marry the Spanish king's sister, though they never had any children and Francis kept two official mistresses. Well, Francis sent Guillaume de Belay. now He was brother of Jean de Belay, the French ambassador in England, whose letters we've been using as a very important source. Francis sent Guillaume to put some not very subtle pressure on the theologians in Paris. Guillaume spent weeks arguing and dining and then threatening and allegedly offering bribes to the academic theologians. In the end, the Paris faculty voted by 53 to 47 that Henry's first marriage was invalid. Success!
0: Jean Bellay, the ambassador brother, then spent days sweating in what he described as l'enfer de Paris, the Paris hellhole in the middle of summer, trying to get a printed copy of The Verdict. He finally got his hands on it, left town and rowed for the coast. There he got on board a ship and hit a storm. He finally reached Dover on Friday the 19th of August 1530, staggered ashore after a terrible crossing. But as he collected his wits and his belongings and set off for London, the opinion of the Paris theologians was just one among a number of significant documents he was carrying and probably not the most
1: important, as we shall see. Well, while all this was going on, Fox, Cramer and a team of researchers back in England were searching for documents to prove that English kings could not be tried abroad. They looked everywhere, from the Royal Archives in London to the Vatican Library in Rome. But what matters for this story is that their investigation turned into a search not only to prove that Henry couldn't be tried abroad, but also that English kings weren't just any ordinary kings. They were imperial monarchs, without any rival in their realm. Now, Imperium was the Renaissance idea that kings, like ancient Roman emperors, should have absolute power.
0: Now, as we've seen, Henry had been interested in Imperium at the start of his reign. But then, during the 15 years Cardinal Wolsey was running his government, he'd lost interest in it. Historian Virginia Murphy has argued that Henry's interest in Imperium revived when he began divorce proceedings in 1527, since the case offered the chance to take the Pope on and challenge his powers. But if that's true, as we've seen, Henry did nothing about it. He'd made no move to strengthen his power over the Church or anything else, even when the Pope was taken prisoner by the Spanish, and even when the hearing in London went so badly wrong. But... During the course of 1530, Imperium seems to have come once again to the front of Henry's mind. The historian Graham Nicholson has shown that the result of all the archive research by Henry's theologians was just a ragbag of documents brought together privately for Henry during 1530 and added to over the next couple of years. It was given the title nea Satis Copiosa, the, quote, sufficiently abundant collections, The title was a triumph, we might say, of hope over
1: expectation. Actually, we now know that what Henry had in his hands was just a jumble of old English records, most of which have since turned out to be medieval forgeries. But Henry didn't know that, and it didn't matter. What this musty bundle of old papers appeared to prove was that English kings couldn't be answerable to any other authority, including the Pope. What Henry's interest in the Imperium was now definitely reviving... In fact, he worked laboriously through his personal copy. We know because its margins are full of his annotations. By 12th of June, 1530, Henry was ready,
0: cautiously, to sound out his leading bishops and nobility on this. He asked them plainly whether he could go ahead and give himself a divorce and ignore the Pope. One man fell on his knees and pleaded with the king to think of the uproar such a thing would create in the country. Henry at once backed down. It was obviously not yet the moment to begin acting like a king with imperium. He'd have to wait until he could bring his leading men with him. But then suddenly, just a couple of months later, in August 1530, Henry comes out with all guns blazing.
1: For a year after the collapse of his divorce trial in London, and with it the collapse of his foreign policy, Henry seems to have sunk into indecision. He gives in to cautious voices, calling on him not to pick a new fight with the Pope. But then, unexpectedly, in August 1530, Henry finds from somewhere a new energy. Now he angrily ignores the cautious voices around him at court. He fires off a blunt message to the Pope, saying, Ne extra angliam litigare cogantor, which means that neither he nor any other Englishman could ever be tried by a Roman court. He follows it up shortly afterwards with another, threatening to get his Parliament to give his Archbishop of Canterbury the power to decide the divorce case, whatever the Pope said about it. Well, it's the crucial move that Henry had shown no sign at all of making in all the previous three years of the case. Early in September 1530, Henry was bending the ear of the Pope's new representative in England about the rights of Englishmen the Duke of Suffolk and Thomas Boleyn had a go at the poor man as well, throwing in that, quote, the king is absolute emperor and pope in his kingdom.
0: By October 1530, Henry's messages to the pope are raging with language he hadn't used for nearly two decades. Another meeting of the great and the good had refused to back Henry's plan to use parliament to solve the case, but Henry defied them and fired off a furious letter to the pope. We know, he wrote to the pope, no superior on earth. The Pope should hand Henry's case back or Henry would simply proceed with it on his own. Pope Clement, cautious European bureaucrat that he was, pointed out that Henry was talking nonsense and that popes had been deciding English kings' matrimonial cases since at least Henry II's day, back in the 12th century, which was of course
1: correct. But Henry ignored all that. Now, for the first time, he was moving actively and majestically onto the offensive – his team of theologians began writing a book against the Pope. They entitled it A Little Treatise Against the Mutterings of Some Papists in Corners. (laughs) Much more ominously, Henry began filing dozens of legal charges against English clergymen. He used the medieval statute of primunere, which banned anyone from referring cases to Rome. He only dropped his charges when the bishops offered him a massive bribe, £100,000, about £45 today. Well, now it was clear to everyone that Henry was on the warpath and that this time he'd be hard to stop before he'd asserted his authority over the English church.
0: But there's a mystery here. Why is it that in August 1530, after months of indecision and caution, Henry had suddenly thrown all restraint to the wind and set off on a course of action that he'd resisted for so long? What had changed? Ever since the great English historian J.J. Scarisbrick first pointed out that this was a turning point, historians have been baffled as to its cause. They've suggested that maybe Henry was now just much more convinced than before by his own arguments about Imperium. After all, now he was backed up by a pile of ancient-looking documents.
1: Well, it's one answer, but it's not a very satisfactory one, given how rapid Henry's shift was up through the gears in August 1530. Why was he suddenly willing to ignore the voices of caution, the men pleading with him on their knees, to be careful? Why was he now set, not only after months of indecision, but after years of argument and quibbling and delay, and with a suddenness of violence that took everyone by surprise, on a path that looked almost certain to lead to England's split with the Roman Church? We think that the reason
0: this sudden shift has been such a mystery is that historians may have been looking in the wrong direction. Understandably, everyone's attention has been grabbed by the collectanea, the pile of musty forgeries that Henry was using to back his case. But the key document was not in Henry's collection. It was in the bags of the French ambassador Jean du Bellay, as he collected himself on that August Friday after his stormy crossing of the Channel and started out for London.
1: historians have always struggled to explain why it was that in August 1530 Henry suddenly goes on the offensive. After years of talking about taking control of the English church, of Imperium, but doing nothing about it, he suddenly fires a barrage of aggressive messages to Rome and threatens the English clergy with legal cases and fines. What we think historians may have overlooked, the crucial document. It was in the baggage of the French ambassador, Jean du Bellay when he arrived at Dover after his rough crossing on the 19th of August.
0: If we hunt in the English state papers, we find a mysterious note dated the 8th of August, 1530, at Cognac in France. In this note, the French king is giving power to his ambassador, Jean du Bellay to make a new treaty with England. Now, the date would be exactly right if we're looking for an explanation of Henry's change of mood. What we've discovered throughout the story so far is that every key moment has been triggered not by henry's love life nor by his ideas about domestic government but by his foreign policy in particular each turning point in this story has turned out to have something very directly to do with henry's relationship with the french
1: but the problem is that there seems to be nothing else in the state papers to show that this treaty which the French king discussed with Bellay at Cognac, was ever thought through, or that Bellay ever even put it to the English king. So, understandably, historians have just ignored it. But back in 1969, a French scholar, Rémy
0: Chouret, edited and published Ambassador Jean Bellay's correspondence. His edition is in the original, which is very difficult 16th century French, and most English historians just go on using the old 19th century translations. Well, you would, wouldn't you? But in Shurey's edition, we find a second extraordinary document about an English alliance with the French. The reason historians seem to have missed it is that in the old English translation historians usually use, the document is dated July 1529. And at that time, relations between the English and the French were terrible. The French were about to sign a peace deal with the Spanish. So this document about a new treaty with England has just looked bizarre and
1: irrelevant. But in his edition in the original French, the editor, Rémy Chiré, dates this document right at the vital moment in August 1530. Well, there's no doubt from the various things the French King refers to in the document, for example the recent release of his two sons, whom the Spanish had been holding hostage, that Chiré is right. The document belongs with the other papers the French King gave to his ambassador, Dubillet, at Cognac in August 1530 including, you recall, the powers to negotiate a new treaty with the English. Well, now, it seems to us, this document that's been so long overlooked is absolute dynamite. Because in it,
0: King Francis outlines in detail the treaty he wants his ambassador to offer Henry. Both kings will keep 6,000 soldiers on standby, with another 6,000 ready as backup. And if Henry goes ahead with ending his marriage and the Spanish decide to attack him... Then the French will send their troops for his defence. Now, this is an extraordinary offer. It's actually amazing. The French king has just signed a peace treaty with the Spanish. You remember the one negotiated by his mother and Charles' aunt the year before, in 1529. He's even been forced to marry the Spanish king's sister. The last thing he's supposed to be doing is working with the English and, above all, proposing a treaty
1: against the Spanish. But what would amaze the English more than this was the offer of troops. No French king had ever promised to send troops to defend England, and they never have since, far indeed from it. But that was exactly what Francis I was offering to do in August 1530. Well Ambassador du Bellay put the draft treaty in his saddlebag and rode for England, stopping for a few days in Paris to collect the opinion of the Paris theologians on Henry's marriage. He arrived at Dover on the 19th of August after his terrible stormy crossing.
0: Frustratingly, every single one of Dubéle's letters from this visit to England has been lost. But from the reports left by other ambassadors, however, we know that he spent two weeks at the English court and was coldly received by the king and his counsellors. Various factions at court were still hostile to the French, who'd left the English friendless just a year before. Dubéle wouldn't have been surprised about this, the day after his conversations with the French king at Cognac, as he rode quickly north, he wrote to a courtier in Paris, worrying about how he would be received in England. I might have to talk to Henry, says Bellay, sans cérémonie présence aucun des seigneurs, informally with none of his courtiers around. Well, even if Bellay managed to find such a moment, he wasn't able to convince the king. Henry wasn't apparently prepared to trust the French any more than his councillors were, or not yet, or not
1: yet in public. But privately, Henry seems to have taken note. With Dubelli's offer, Henry now knew that Francis was ready again to split with the Spanish. He was on the lookout for allies. He was probably secretly getting ready to launch an attack on his new Spanish brother-in-law. The extraordinary offer of troops may even have made the French look, for once, more in need of Henry than he was of them. Well, Whatever, Henry knew after Du Belle's rather uncomfortable two weeks at court in August 1530 that the old English diplomatic game, setting the French and the Spanish off against each other, was back in play. So this explains what historians have always found so mysterious, Henry's sudden move onto the offensive that month. The Pope might be able to face down an English king while he was isolated in Europe. But if Henry was backed by the French, it was a different question altogether.
0: So just as in 1525 and in 1527, in August 1530, it was the possibility of working with the French against the Spanish that prompted Henry into opening a new chapter in his divorce from Catherine of Aragon. And this time he was set on a course much more resolutely in conflict with the Pope
1: there was just one more big turning point to go before Henry finally split with Rome. It came on the 1st of September, 1532. From August 1530, armed with the knowledge that the French were back in play for a common front against the Spanish, Henry begins to move his campaign forward, not only to divorce Catherine, but also to take control of the English Church. On the 1st of
0: September 1532, Henry made Anne Boleyn the Marchioness of Pembroke. It was, at long, long last, the first sign Henry had given that he was probably intending to marry her. When we say probably, because even then, at the same time as he gave her this title, he unusually made provision for her yet to be conceived son to inherit from her, quotes, whether or not born in wedlock. Clearly, even then, Henry hadn't yet decided what he was going to do. But he kept his options open. He also kitted Anna out with some new clothes, including a black satin nightgown, and began renovating the royal apartments in the Tower of London. Now, he didn't use the Tower very often, but he would need the apartments if he was going to stage a coronation for a new Queen Anne.
1: Now, the question is, what had persuaded Henry that the time might have come at last to sort his marriage out? After all, the Pope was no closer at all to allowing him to divorce Catherine. If Henry was going to act, he would have to break decisively with the Pope first. Well, historians usually maintain that Henry was now simply set on a course of taking over the English Church. He would be an imperial monarch, one with no rivals. And, well, there's certainly some truth in that, some evidence that Henry had been moving in that direction. In February 1531, Henry had demanded that the English Church recognise him as, quote, protector and only supreme head of the English Church, with, quote, cure of the souls of the English. Now, cure of souls meant responsibility for the eternal salvation of the English, not just their material welfare, as kings usually had. Well, on this occasion, the clergy proposed a compromise, naming Henry supreme head, quote, as far as the law of Christ allowed which, of course, meant nothing at all. And then, as the historian J.J. Scarrishbrick put it, they, quote, "...shuffled the rest of the king's words so that he had a care for souls in their cure." Which also, of course, meant that nothing at all had changed. This round, anyway, had gone to the churchmen. In
0: 1531, the distinguished English legal authority Christopher St. German brought out a new edition of his textbook Doctor and Student, in which he supported Parliament's right to govern the English church. In April 1531, the verdicts of the universities that Henry's agents had collected were added to an updated account of Henry's case at the Blackfriars' trial. They were all published under the title Censurae Academarium. In this book, for the first time, Henry very publicly stated that he would take action in England in defiance
1: of the Pope. So, this round to Henry. The same year, 1531, Henry's councillor, Thomas Audley, began drafting parliamentary legislation which would allow the English church to decide Henry's case. It was something many had expected him to do in the summer of 1529. In fact, it was something he could have done long before. After all, he'd been talking about asserting his authority over the English church since the start of his reign. It was seven years since he'd begun distancing himself from Catherine and moving towards a French alliance. It's why, incidentally, we argue that the whole divorce saga began as a strand in Henry's foreign policy, and that Imperium, his grab for more power, was only bolted onto it later. Not the other way round, as a lot of historians seem to believe.
0: But in 1531, Henry discovered that it was still too early to act. In March that year, the House of Lords sat to debate the king's divorce. The reason they sat was supposedly to deny a rumour that the king was motivated by infatuation with Anne rather than by an uncomfortable royal conscience over his marriage to Catherine, which had always been the official line. But the bishops of Bath and St Asaph's both rose to defend Catherine and Norfolk, the senior nobleman, hurriedly stepped in to wind the debate up. So Henry put off asking Parliament to consider Audley's legislation giving him control of the church until January 1532 looks like another round to Henry's opponents. But the question is, what changed in 1532 that gave Henry the courage at last to ignore all the opposition and take decisive
1: action? Was it perhaps that his infatuation with Anne Boleyn had finally got the better of him? Well, perhaps. In 1531, Henry had finally installed Anne in her own palace, Whitehall Palace, which had been hugely expanded by his disgraced minister Wolsey. Actually, whether that was a step up or a step down for Anne is an open question. There was no talk at all of Anne personalising Whitehall Palace, no H's and A's to match the ubiquitous H's and K's everywhere else. Henry probably still spent most of his time at Greenwich, where Catherine was. Anne still then had no proper title, she was just the King's official mistress. On formal occasions, like Holy Rude Day, that's the 3rd of May, 1531, King Henry and Queen Catherine still dined together.
0: It wasn't until July 1531 that Henry finally severed relations with Catherine. It was the 14th of July, whilst he, Catherine and Anne were all staying at Windsor Castle. By now everyone was quite used to this ménage à trois. But this time, Henry broke with protocol. He rode out with Anne without taking formal leave of his wife. There was just a message to say that he'd gone hunting at Chertsey Abbey. He had, in fact, left Catherine for good. Some would say it was a coward's way out. Well, to begin with, the situation suited Catherine because her daughter Mary, deeply hated by Anne, could now spend precious time with her at Windsor. And Catherine and Henry kept up their long-standing habit of exchanging messages every three days. But this didn't last long. Less than three weeks later, on the 31st of July, Henry ordered Catherine out of Windsor so that he and Anne could hunt in the grounds without seeing her. Catherine would be moved to Wolsey's luxurious manor house, the Moor, in Hertfordshire, but their daughter and only child, Mary, would be sent to Richmond. Well, Catherine went on pointedly stitching shirts for Henry until the end of her life, but she would never see her daughter Mary again. She continued to attend formal occasions at court, but Henry would not
1: meet her anymore. That Christmas, 1531, for the first time, Anne presided at court, but it was the most miserable that anyone could remember. Still, Henry hadn't got round to giving her an aristocratic title. She was still nothing but the official mistress. So although things were moving in Anne's favour, up until the middle of 1532, they were going at a snail's pace. Not much sign of an infatuation here. In fact, on the 23rd of October 1531, the Pope had written wearily of Henry's case, The real cure for this evil will come from time, especially if it's true what we hear from some sources, though I don't know how reliable they are, that Signora Anna has begun to decline in the King's favour. While Henry's attachment to his mistress had evidently left at least room for doubt among some observers.
0: So by the early months of 1532, Henry's campaign for imperium was still stuttering, starting and stopping. And his attachment to Anne equally lacked any urgency. So we're still hunting for something that might have pushed Henry into decisive action at last in 1532, getting Parliament to legislate and finally gearing Anne up for marriage. Well, every time we have a question like that in this series, the answer always seems to be the same. Yes. It was foreign policy that drove Henry, and this time is no different.
1: By the middle of 1532, the international situation was uniquely favourable. Not only were the French angling for his support, there was also the situation with the Turks, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.